Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Tim, you want to hear something cool? I do want to hear something cool. What's going on, Jeremy? So this morning, I came downstairs at about seven o'clock as I normally do. My wife's down there drinking coffee and I heard myself. I'm like, what is that? Well, she has just started listening to this podcast, Tripping Over the Barrel, and was playing the podcast through the Alexa. So it's kind of startling at seven in the morning to hear yourself in your own voice through the Alexa reverberating through the kitchen. Wow. That is really cool. I didn't even, I didn't know that was possible. Yeah. So it's kind of a nice segue into the conversation today. We have Sid Gupta joining us. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Nash. And Tim and I have gotten to know Sid recently. He's kind of friends with the Digital Wildcatters family. And really, really cool what he's doing from a tech perspective. But also, he has a really unique background, at least I think, from people that I encounter in the space, a path from you know living in India, living in Texas, having a startup software company, and working at a company with over 5,000 people. I think we'll, we'll dive into all of this stuff today. But the idea of an Alexa for oil and gas, Sid... Tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing over at Nash. Yes, thanks for having me. Good to be here with both of you and talking to you. Uh, Yeah, so Alexa for the energy market, that's kind of like tongue-in-cheek way of describing Nash. Our goal was when we started Nash to reduce the amount of time wasted in finding answers within data sources that companies already have. And we felt that having a conversational AI do that for you will be a very unique and uh, accessible way for people to get those answers out. So that's kind of where the idea for Nesh came about. But yeah, like how everybody uses Alexa, we are hoping that the same thing transitions from our home to our workplace as well. Yeah, Sid, so I think it was you who said this, but I really liked the way you described it early on, which was imagine if Siri or Alexa went to school and got a petroleum engineering degree. I mean, that's the types of questions that you're trying to enable with Nash. Is that right? Yeah, that is correct. I mean, our kind of way of describing it has evolved a little bit. So earlier, that's how you used to describe it. It's like if Alexa has a petroleum engineering and geoscience degree, <laughs> now Alexa has just an engineering and business degree because we have kind of expanded her skill sets to have more than just petroleum engineering or subsurface engineering in it. So it can do a lot more than that. So now she has gone to an engineering school and business school. So she is nice. <laughs> a <laughs> double graduate. degree. Yeah, double degree. Now she's in too much student debt. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. So this topic is super intriguing to me. I was actually talking to somebody else who was a forward-thinking IT guy. I think we'll have him on the show eventually. A really forward-thinking IT leader in oil and gas. And they were trying to do that just for their individual company. Right. If I want to find out what does my production look like, the Barneswell 22, and you know, you'd love to get a response that said production on the Barneswell 22 is 264 barrels, which is five barrels over anticipated. Thank you. Right? Uh, is it things like that, or is it larger, more industry type questions? Where, where is um, your lady looking to answer these questions? Yeah, so we look at both public and private data. So a company can ask a question like you described, or they could be looking at like publicly facing information about other companies and their partners and their competitors and their peers. So it could be both. It could be internal data or public data uh, that they want to access. But 
yeah, the intention is to kind of enable a natural conversation with the type of data that you might be looking at on a regular basis. Sid, you, you've been doing this according to the, to the website and LinkedIn. You've been looking at Nasher for about two years. You kind of started down the, uh, the process of getting this started. And before that, you had a pretty good long career at Slumberjay. You know, and I, I was at Slumberjay for a number of years. What's it like? What's the difference going from that giant, you know, beast of a company and going to a small company as an entrepreneur at where kind of you make all the rules? What is that like? It's interesting because it's sort of like, the, to me, the experience has been pretty similar. Schlumberger was a fast-moving organization. So we had the liberty to do stuff, especially like I was in the product management role at Schlumberger. So we were kind of building products and trying to just stay ahead of the curve. And that's what we were trying to do in Nash 2. The, the major difference that we see is that there are fewer checks and balances. And like one of the things that I, I was like tweeting about it yesterday that as a startup, one of the main defenses that we have is, is speed, like being able to do things at a faster pace than a larger organization, speed of, de- sure. speed of design, speed of shipping products, speed of customer support, all of that. So that's something that we have seen as a big difference is being able to move much faster. And if things change, being able to turn the corner faster, and then just kind of like going from an idea to a prototype to a shippable product in two to three months versus like eight to 12 months. So that's the biggest difference. But otherwise, I think just surrounding yourself with a good team, no matter if you're a large company or a small company, doesn't really matter. The other difference I would say is that in Schlumberger, it was much easier for us to open doors because the brand name was there for us. And there was somebody else who was making those intros and uh, creating those opportunities. And we would just walk in and be like, here's a cool thing we build. But at a startup, you got to do everything on your own. So managing mm-hmm. the product, managing the requirements, and then doing business development, doing customer success. Uh, Moving doing furniture. moving furniture doing hr all of that so everything is kind of like rolled into one so i guess that's just way of life of starting your own company that's another another, i guess a huge difference between a large and a small organization yeah i I remember getting exposed to that very early on i you know before it seems like a lifetime ago but there was a point in time where i was not in oil and gas and i was just a software startup guy in boulder colorado and i actually worked at a for about a year at at a great company called rally software they ended up going public, and then they were eventually wrapped into Computer Associates. But it was funny because my interview, the company was like, you know, I was employee 12 or something. It was it was growing really fast. But my interview was in one building, and then I showed up in a different building for the first day because they emailed me on like Thursday, show up here. And I show up, and I'm like, where do I sit? And they're like, oh, you, you have to assemble your desk in your chair. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, here I am. I didn't expect this, but you know, I'm there with like a, a lead engineer and a support person, and we're all building our desks out, right? But you know, it, it just sort of shows you that that's a, a product of something bigger. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's interesting. I kind of went the other way. I went from so Sid, you went from the the big company down to the smaller one. I went from the small 17 person company to getting acquired by Slumberjay. And to me, it was kind of fun because we were doing a little bit of everything. And, you know, when there was an emergency, you get all 17 people together and you dole out responsibilities and we go fix the emergency. And then 
But the, the cool thing about when Summer Street did come in, I finally got to give up things like I no longer had to manage our booth for trade shows. I could, okay, someone's to take that. Oh, you want to take the flyers away from me? So I don't have to manage trying to put that together. Oh, someone else is going to write the manuals. Oh, thank God. I just started, <laughs> so give, nice. just started giving up responsibilities. You have a trade-off. It's good to be able to go do all those things, but then it's also nice to kind of give those up sometimes and focus on one thing or two things. That's true. I probably won't miss running payroll whenever that time comes for us. So, Sid, yeah, right? Stressful. I'm sure not only stressful, but also takes time. I remember a friend of mine doing that as a, as a borrower. Here's a question for you. So, you know, I'm, I'm on your LinkedIn page and I see you as a, the CEO, right? But all CEOs get there differently and they all have different strengths and passions. What would you say of all of the different roles in the organization, despite being CEO, you kind of gravitate to as a product development is it sales and sales presentations, marketing? Where, where do you kind of align? I think my background and like the part that I enjoy doing the most is like I'm a product person at heart. So thinking about the design and the how the product will enrich the life of our users, that's the piece that I kind of spend the most time at. And I don't feel stressed when I'm doing that. I guess that's one way mm-hmm. of kind of thinking about it. It's like anything Talk else, about- like, Focusing on the sales or focusing on the marketing, there's always that like timeline and stress on your mind because that's one way of thinking. It's like, what what do you want to do that brings you joy? And I think that piece of that, my day-to-day work is the design and the product. Like That's the one that I'm most passionate about is how do I make this product slightly better than it was yesterday so our customers will use it more. I totally agree. And I, I love that perspective. Right. Talk to me a little bit about when you went out to raise funds. Had, had you ever done something like that before? And, and what was your approach to, to get an investment behind this idea, which has become a product? No, I had not. I mean, it was kind of like for every first time founder, it was just similar. We were in the same boat trying to figure out, like, raise money. And not all startups need money. So that was something that we kind of learned as we were going along that, well, venture capital is not a prerequisite to starting a company. You could do that on your own. So yeah. we kind of did that initially. The initial process for us was just to learn like what it entails to start a company. So going through the process of like incorporating and then going through the paperwork of like setting up the founders agreement and all of that. Once we had done that, and then when we had some product ready to that we could show, that's when we actually first started like talking to the the institutional investors and the goal was not to raise money but just to see what type of questions do they ask so we were just kind of like pitching and cold calling emailing mm. just to understand what kind of things were they asking so that was our first step is to just talk to as many people as we can to get their feedback the good and the bad and how they were kind of tearing our idea apart so we could just kind of build that stronger and stronger of a case so we ended up talking to close to like 55, 56 investors wow. Before, wow. before we raised our first like pre-seed round in, in 2019. Wow. Well, congratulations. I mean, great, great hustle. Obviously, that's a, that is an awesome testament to, to passion, right? I mean, that is, that's awesome. So Sid, we've always had a, well, We've done a couple episodes on demos that have gone wrong, falling on our faces, that kind of thing. <laughs> and it seems it strikes me that I've always done all of my presentations have kind of been towards clients or maybe internal meetings, but I've never had to kind of go do presentations to investors, people that are looking to give you money because they want to get something out of it. What's the difference between 
the two different types of presentations you're going to give two clients and two investors? Do you do it differently? Mm. Is it the same presentation? Uh, no, it's completely different. Like investor presentations, you talk about the product, you spend just a little bit of time on the product. Most of the time is kind of spent on like how you're going to scale this idea. If it's a revenue driven product, how you're going to make money and going more over the business case on the customer side is more on the value proposition. And then talking about more of the specific use cases, how it'll integrate with the data and all of that. It's, it's very different. And the demos are quite different too. I mean, even if you're showing the same product, the narrative is, uh, is different on, on both of those. So that's, that's actually a good point. We also kind of learned that because you can't use the same pitch deck that you're using for a customer versus an investor. I think after the fourth slide, both of those presentations, they diverge from each other. So, but surely, you know, some of the, from a technical perspective, I guess you got to, these guys have to have a belief in the technical side of the product as well. Is how deep will they get in on the technical side? Do they have to develop their own belief in the product or they just have to believe your, the, uh, the business case you're putting together? Yeah, I guess it depends on what number of conversation you are in because investors, they never invest in like, well, this is something you probably have heard. They invest in lines and not dots. So they got to like, you, you probably have to have like maybe 15 different meetings with an investor before they write you a check. So the first conversation is never technical. You just explain the problem. You show them this is what you're doing. And then they, they get it. They have heard so many pitches, probably by the fourth or the fifth presentation where they would start asking you about the technical due diligence and how does it work in the back end. So that's when it starts getting like into the nitty gritty. The first couple of conversations are just at a very high level, more on the business facing front. But on the customer side, the first conversation or maybe the second one starts getting too very technical, which is understandable. They want to know how, how it works in the back end and how you can add value to their workflow. Makes sense. Tell me a little bit about growing up in India and going to IIT. <laughs> Oh, very cool. in in about ninety seconds, oh. as opposed to the next seventy five minutes. <laughs> uh, where do I start? Yeah, so going to IIT is like sort of living your parents' dream. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's tough, right? I mean, IIT is one of the toughest examination to crack. I don't know. I don't know what percentage it used to be. Some like I don't point one percent or two or somebody like number of people who applied. Yeah, percentage you get. Yeah. it was a tough one, and like. Kids start preparing for the IIT entrance examination, maybe an exaggeration, but some of them, they do it like in fifth and sixth grade, they start preparing for it. Most <laughs> most kids do it when they are like in their, in high school. So, I mean, yeah. and it's sort of like a, the way it works is you get in, you write an exam and then you get a rank. Yeah. And then the lower your rank, the less picks you have in what, which IIT you want to go to or which oh. which major you want to get in. So like computer science is like probably at the very top and then something, I don't know, like some other major, I don't want to name it, but it's probably at the bottom. So <laughs> US so. history or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that was my major. What the hell? <laughs> I'm not even joking. Double major in history Sorry. and American studies. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it wasn't an intentional double major. It was totally an accident. They actually, I was an American studies major because at Brandeis, it was like what all the baseball players did. Everybody knew it was the easiest. If anybody at Brandeis is listening, they know this. Half my friends were American studies majors. But there was a lot of crossover between history and American studies, as, as you can imagine. So I was like, wait a second. History is just like an eight class thing. And I checked it halfway through my first semester senior year. They're like, I'm a double major. Exactly. I'm a double major. <laughs> just like I, exactly how I drew it up. 
Yeah. <laughs> so it was like preparing for the IIT. Like we had to, like you would go after school, you would go to like this coaching center and you're, you're crammed in a room with like 200 other, other kids, 120 degree temperature, no AC. You're kind Man. of like... <laughs> That's where I draw the line right there. That's where I'm out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was two years of my life kind of going through that. And the first time I applied, I got in, but it was like a really poor rank. So yeah. it's like you're almost like in one of those nosebleed seats up in the stadium. So you don't want to, you probably don't want to take that. So I like, I kind of gave up that year and then studied another year and then kind of got, wow. got a better rank the next time and was able to get in. But yeah, I mean, the, it's, Getting in is one part and then emerging out the other side, graduating is another fun story. Is it is it harder to get in or to finish? I think it's harder to get in. That could be just my perspective. But yeah, it was. it's just like, it's too much competition. I was like, I joke with my wife, like she's Indian, but she was born and raised here. So I was like, yeah, man, if, if I could afford to go to school in the US, I would like do that in a heartbeat just for my undergrad. Because it's like, kids are very smart here too. They go to like college like UT or NM or anywhere else. And they probably learn as much as we did in IIT. But just that process of getting in is just so competitive. It takes a lot, a lot of toll on you. So, but yeah. yeah. They're supposed to prepare you for the, the real world, but they, they throw you out there already burned out. I mean, it, you know, I think it does help teach you work ethic but it puts you down on that path to, to keep grinding. So, you know, interesting, I guess, story about me coming from the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire, there was pretty much nobody of color in general, but definitely no Indian people. I don't remember really even working too closely with, with Indians until I worked at Seven Lakes Technologies, which was really interesting because it was all Indian dudes, right? And almost all of these guys went to IIT. So very serious, very hardworking, right? Very, very smart, driven. And it was interesting. And I, I made a lot of friends and contacts coming out of there, which gave me a wide kind of swath and a much better understanding, right? Because otherwise, I was super ignorant. Here's a question for you, though, right? What are some of your favorite Indian food places in the States that you hit up when you travel, particularly in oil-related cities? Dallas, Houston, Midland, if there's anything. Tulsa, give me some juice. Ooh, that's a tough one. Midland? I don't know, man. That's a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it might not be. I don't know that I could name one. I couldn't name one. Should I look it up? I'm going to look it up. Like, that's like saying, like, Olive Garden is your favorite in Italian restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There is such a variety of Indian too. That's amazing. Yeah, there is. Like whenever somebody says Indian food, typically they're referring to like North Indian. Like that's the default. But there right. is like so many different cuisines. Like in Tulsa, I've had Indian food, which is pretty good. I forget the name, but it's because it's a, in, it's a university town. There is a lot yeah. of like Indian restaurants there. But yeah, I mean, I hard to say and like usually when i'm traveling i i don't really go look for indian restaurants too much because we have it at home all the time yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's a good point it's funny if you type in midland texas indian food into google the first thing that comes up is the grand texan hotel and convention center so i'm guessing there's like some buffet if there's one it's called taste of india in the permian basin so we got one yeah one. that's amazing so what what region of india are you from i'm from a town called lucknow it's North India. So it's like it's about an hour from Delhi by flight. So would you, I mean, I guess since we're on the topic of cuisine, what would be kind of the go-to dish? If you were going to say this is the signature dish of Luke now, what would you say that dish is? 
It's like Lucknow used to be like a royal city, like ruled by kind of like the Nawabs. Mm -hmm. The Nawabs were these like rulers of India, like in pre-colonial times. Um, mm -hmm. So the dish that Lucknow is famous for is like kebabs and biryani. Those are the two. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So yeah. the biryani, man. Those are the two. Biryani came into my life way too late. <laughs> God, do I love biryani. That is some good yeah. stuff. Sorry, gotcha. And that and biryani is like, there are a lot of different varieties of it too. So there's like, there's North Indian biryani, there's South Indian. And within South India, there's like three or four different flavors. So if you like travel, if you go to different restaurants, you will get like different flavors of biryani and the way they cook it is quite different too. But my town kind of like is one variety of that. They're quite famous for that. Nice. So you went to school at IIT in, in uh, India and then you came and got your master's at Texas. Going to school in both places, I know we kind of bridged, got close to it. What's the big, the, the school experience difference between going to school in India and then in your case, going to school in Austin? And why Texas? Oh, why Texas? I don't know. I mean, I didn't apply to too many schools. Uh, so I was applying for my major in India was petroleum engineering. So I wanted to continue down that path. So I had applied to just a couple of schools in the US and UT gave me a fellowship. So I came to Texas nice. and didn't really know what to expect. But Austin was like the most amazing town. So I fell in love with it. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. I don't know where to start. It's I guess like the interaction between professors and students would be the one that I would say is the biggest difference that I saw between like Indian universities and American universities. So there's more or less between the universities? Well, I mean, it's more of a cultural thing, I guess, like professors and teachers that are like held up on a pedestal in our culture, in Indian culture. So there is a very, it's like almost a different hierarchy. You can't talk to them in the same way. So you can't, you don't really question them as much you don't like have a informal conversation with them there's a it's like almost like they're in a different zone than you are but here the professors like you could like they're very approachable so you can like kind of, uh you can have just like you're talking to a colleague and you can kind of like have a banter outside of class and then the class conversations are very different too that was the biggest difference that i saw which was like i guess more of a cultural adjustment than um something else but that was, I guess, one of the one of the the biggest. And then also, I guess we never had the concept of like open book exams, which <laughs> which right. I we used to call that cheating in India. <laughs> <laughs> right. You got to memorize it. Man. Yeah. So and we realized how hard it is to do that. Like when you when you have an open book exam, it's like super hard to like get all those answers done within that time frame. So that was a new experience, kind of like, oh, you get to bring your books and your notes to class. That should be fun. So, but quickly learned that wasn't the case. It was not fun. <laughs> then the professors know how to ask questions and open notes that yeah. make it even harder. Yeah. yeah. They still know how to make it hard. So I hadn't seen this new website and I just scrolled down. First of all, I want to get my company on there, Tim. You should get OBS on here. A lot of companies scrolling by big names, right? Energy IQ, Inveris, IHS Market. OData, Peloton, right? Microsoft, that's fairly big, but pretty cool. I kind of have a, a good sense of what you're doing searching those databases, which is unique and I think needed. Let me ask you this. Have you thought about what an exit would look like? Are you guys eventually going to go public? Are you going to acquire other innovative companies? Or do you anticipate that someone else that's hungry for data uh, aggregation and querying, like some of these companies on this page might say, hey, we want a mesh. We want to buy a mesh, or we're going to build a mesh. You know, what, what do you think as far as potential exit down the road? 
I'm not building the company thinking about a one specific exit. I know there is a exit for us. I don't know what that will look like. Will it be an acquisition or will it be an IPO? We definitely want to build the company to be very large because one of the things that we've discovered as we were building Nesh was the applicability of this technology to generally any industry, if it's energy or if it's even outside like manufacturing or fintech. So that's something that I feel that there's a lot of opportunity for us to grow, but we are taking it slow and making sure we have a good footing before we expand out. So I know there is some exit. If it's one or the other, that's kind of hard to say, but kind of focused on making sure that the product is delivering value to whoever is using it today before moving out to another other kind of another area to go cater to. Sid, I was... Uh- I'm glad earlier in the conversation, you said Nesh was a her, which was helpful for me because I didn't know if it was going to be a, to my American ears, it sounds like a gender neutral name. What does Nesh come from? Yeah, that's a good question. So we have a god in India called Ganesh. And Ganesh is, he's the remover of obstacles and the god of wisdom. Um, (laughs) There you go. It's kind of like, Nesh is doing the same for you. So we took the Nesh from Ganesh and that's where the name comes from. But yeah, we, we gave her the personality of she, because why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> that's sort of the trend. Yeah. yeah, I also think there was a Ganesh at Silicon Valley show, which makes sense. They always had deeper meanings. Oh, that so was that's... Ganesh. That was not Ganesh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my ears deceived me. But you watched that show too. One of my funnier meetings, I'd say, with the, an oil and gas company was I was sitting down with a colleague of mine who was an Indian guy, very thick accent. And he's explaining the technology. And this is right when that Silicon Valley show got popular. I could see the guy ready to make some sort of comment. He was just smiling. He's like, I'm sorry, have you guys seen that show, Silicon Valley? Because what you're saying right now is like exactly the kind of stuff that they talk about on that show. Like, I know, I know. We're living that, right? Which you know makes us feel like what we're doing is super cool. But but I think what you're doing is super cool. And that's why I'm kind of intrigued and definitely wanted to have you on here because I'm going to be keeping an eye on you guys. And I want to try it out. I think Tim said he signed up for a, a license to test it out, right? Yeah, just, you know, in researching yesterday for this call, they changed their website and created a whole bunch of new additions. And and uh, there's now an edition zero, which is my favorite word, free. So I can get in there. And I, I think by looking at it, I can start making questions of companies' annual reports and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, edition zero was kind of like a culmination of a lot of the work that we did for the past couple of years. As we were talking to a lot of our customers, one thing that kept coming up repeatedly was like a company wanted to know everything about the market, what other companies were doing, what kind of things were on their mind, what kind of strategy were they adopting? Because everyone was sort of realizing it's going to become much more competitive when the energy market comes on, yep. comes out on the other side of the pandemic. So It'll happen. Yep. competitive intelligence is going to be one of those areas where everybody needs to focus on. Uh, and we saw that Nesh lends itself very well to that uh, narrative because people have a lot of questions about competitors. And if you could just ask somebody that, it would be a much easier way for you to do that study. So we kind of took all that feedback from our customers and then we trained Nesh to answer a bunch of these competitive intelligence and corporate strategy questions. And we decided to make it free because we wanted to give everybody an experience mm-hmm. to see how how does talking to an AI feels like. Uh, so that's what Edition Zero is, is competitive intelligence, corporate strategy in a conversational interface that you can try out for free today. And who's going to buy this? Like, What is the persona within, I guess, an upstream oil and gas company to start? 
of who buys it? Is it a is it a reservoir engineer? Is it you know CIO? Is it the president of the company? Yes, it could be used by business development teams. It could be used by marketing. It could be used by investor relations, corporate strategy. There, some companies have a competitive intelligence group, and those guys they're reporting to the CFO. Then it could be used by private equity firms can be used by consulting companies. So there's a lot of users, but specifically within an ENP company, if you're looking at, then it's going to be the, the former group that we talk, yeah, like the in- investor relation and, and corporate strategy and BD too. Well, hopefully we have some of those people listening. I think Tim and I have played in that world a little bit, right? Yeah, we have. We'll cut it off there. This was a really fun podcast. Sid, Gupta G, can I call you Gupta G? <laughs> <laughs> You can, yeah. It sounds like a fun for. I don't think he's not going to answer to it. Yeah. Do you know what that means, Tim? Do you know what that means? No idea. It's like uh, you add G to the end of somebody's name if it, if they're like honorable, it's like, right? It's if you're like, like it's a, it's a like great old. old man. Oh, it's okay. Like, sir. It's like, it's oh, like sir. It's oh, like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, Sidgupta G, Tim Lozer G, we appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, seeing where your where company and product goes, my man. Thank you, Sid. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you guys.